pretty, uh, well, I'll tell you what, last week they left me a, a sheet of music, this week they left me the play, so uh, let me, yeah, there you go, I don't think they want a one-man interpretation of that play. Um, if Grayson hasn't already hooked you up with a, our daily bread, uh, there are a few left. He's, uh, he, he was uh, on the move this morning. Did, uh, if you didn't get one, uh, let me know and, and we'll, we'll uh, get, get you one. <laughs> uh, apparently, uh, Grayson, I mean, he was, uh, he was moving, wasn't he? Yeah, he was getting it done. Okay. He even gave Danny one. It's not in Braille. So, uh, you know, so there you go. But, um, hey, I do have a couple of announcements. Uh, uh, December the 25th, we'll, we'll obviously we're not having services here, but we are having services Friday night. Our Christmas service will be at 7 o'clock Friday night, and it's a unique time uh, for us to get together and to worship. Uh, it provides you an opportunity uh, to be with your family. Uh, maybe uh, some of you will be out of town. Uh, it will also provide you an opportunity maybe to... Uh, visit some of your family's churches if they're having services that Sunday. So, um, you know, we concede to that, and uh, uh, we just want you guys to know that we will be gathering that, that Friday night at 7 o'clock, and we will be having a service. Um, a couple other things that I just wanted to bring to your attention this morning. Um, I was talking to Janice um, and uh, Wes Monroe this morning, and uh, her niece, you know, she had posted, her niece Deborah. Uh, was uh, looking at having an emergency C-section, which she, she did, and little Francesca was born uh, and weighed, uh, it was tw she was 23 weeks, right? And what was the weight? Do you? Huh? Okay, low. Let's just go there. I mean, um, uh, Janice had showed me a picture of uh, Francesca, and uh, it's hard to kind of uh, reference the size of the baby, but in all reality, she would fit in your hand, and she's 23 weeks old. The mother is doing well, wrestling with uh, some blood pressure control issues, but the baby uh, has a long, long road ahead of her. Uh, so I would ask you guys to be praying for baby Francesca as, as uh, God uh, allows her to develop in the care of uh, the hands of good doctors and good nurses, and uh, trusting and believing that she'll reach every bit of God's full potential for her young life. You know, uh, God's got a plan for that little girl and uh, for her mother. And also, I'd ask you guys to be praying for Janice and them as they have lost a really close uncle in their family who played a significant role in little Ruby's life. And so uh, when we're, we come together in times like this, you know, we're celebrating Christmas and we're, we're kind of getting caught up in the you know, the emotion and the joy and whatnot, and all that's real and, and legitimately justified, right? I mean, I love this time of the season, but life continues on, you know, and uh, while you and I may be rejoicing over certain facets of our lives and whatnot, there's other people who are going through some very difficult things. And so uh, just remember one another. Just remember one another, because we're all, we're all in this together, man, and we're, we're all needing one another. We're all needing the prayers of one another. So uh, just remember, when people put things on our Facebook page, our family page, and they request prayer, man, uh, just take a few minutes, man, to step back from that screen, from your phone, whatever it is, and, and just ask God, Mike, just ask God to be with Deborah, to be with baby Francesca, whatever the need is. Uh, Don Knuckles had posted they got a, a, a stomach bug going through their home, uh, so uh, she asked for prayer. Take a moment today and just say, Lord, for Don Knuckles and her family, would you just be with them today? Would you help them? And, and you know, and, and I've said this a thousand times, and uh, uh, when we engage in certain things and sicknesses find us and the body responds the way the body was designed to respond, then the credit goes to the designer, right? And so that's what I pray, that, that God's beautifully orchestrated design would work itself the way God has designed it to work. And, and bring about and promote the health that I believe God desires for us. And so just remember to pray for Don Knuckles. I can go through, there's many of them. I just, I just want to say pray for one another. Amen? All right, all right, Trent, you done wasted five minutes of our time. And we're in Exodus. We're, it's the Exodus Christmas series. 
That's exactly what it is. And listen, you know, we're in chapter 20, and we're going to close out chapter 20 today. We're going to read some verses. Some I'm not going to cover. I'm just going to comment on. As a matter of fact, as we go through some of these horizontal commands, I just want to kind of just briefly, like a drive-by. You know what I'm talking about? We're not going to stop and park on each and every one of these. We're going to do some drive-by commentary this morning. And then we find ourselves on one that I feel like I really want to or need to share with you this morning, elaborate on. We will do that. But we want to try to get through these verses today. And, uh, you know, uh, uh, we, we talked about this, Otis, early on. You know, the first four commandments are, are vertical commandments in relation to our, our, ourselves and God. And then the last six are horizontal. And last week we touched on uh, the, the bridge commandment, that being honor your father and mother. Okay, and we had talked about last week, we, we talked about the obvious, but then we also addressed some things about how do you honor parents when the relationship dynamic was abusive? How do we honor parents when it wasn't the quintessential leave it to beaver experience, right? How do you, and we covered all that, and I'm not going to elaborate on that today. I'm just going to say, hey, go listen to the podcast, okay? It's up, you can listen to that. But that's where we were at last week was honoring uh, your, your father and mother. So the very next commandment, the very next commandment that we're going to cover this morning on this uh, introduction to the Christmas season is do not murder, <laughs> okay? All right? So for all of you guys going out there shopping, you know, and you, you survived Black Friday and you're going to experience Cyber Monday or whatever it is. Uh, as you're out there in Walmart parking lot, I need you to heed this commandment. I don't want to be getting you out of jail for murdering someone because of the, the widescreen TV they had that you wanted. We'll deal with coveting here in a moment as well. And uh, so, so uh, just, just we're, going to, we're going to touch on this. But what I want you to understand as we start working our way through this scripture is that when we start to look at the commandments of God, especially the horizontal commandments of God, we begin to see the heart of God, the character of God, the, 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 uh, 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 the, the morality of God being projected onto a nation that belongs to Him. And He's basically saying to them, I want you in your conduct to represent my heart. And so I want to read you a portion of Scripture prior uh, to opening uh, or really getting into that message to kind of set the pace uh, and the direction, okay? So we'll have to, we'll have, to have a kind of like a, an understanding uh, before we even get into it, okay? So if you're with me this morning, turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're going to start at verse 13, and we're going to read through 26. A lot of reading this morning, but not necessarily a lot of of covering all of this. but So at verse 13, this is how it reads. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's lawnmower, neighbor's wife, or his male or female servants, or his tractor, his car, his house, his belongings, his boat his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. I know what you're thinking, Trent. I didn't read any of that in the scripture. I didn't see that. And then it goes on, and this is what the scripture says. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. The people remained at a distance while Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Now I'm going to read this next scripture, which we will not be covering this morning, but it's significant to get us to the end of this chapter. I, I, I do want to make one or two comments here. It says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites this, you have seen for yourselves that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make any gods to be alongside me. This is a reiteration, right, of some of the previous commands. Command one and two. Do not make for yourselves gods of silver or gods of gold. This reiterating speaks to the fact that they have a propensity to bend that way. And I think God is saying to them, don't, don't, don't. You know, I'm getting your attention, right? 
Now check this out. It says, make an altar of earth for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. Fellowship offering it literally means a peace offering. Jesus is both, right? Jesus is the burnt offering, the sin offering, and he's the peace offering, right? The fellowship offering. Your sheep and goats and your cattle, wherever I cause my name to be honored, I will come to you and bless you. Do you want to be blessed? Create a place where God's name is honored. Right? That's pretty simple. And then he says this. If you make an altar of stones for me, do not build it with dressed stones, for you will defile it if you use a tool on it. Let me, let me just say this. The idea of creating an altar that is so beautiful and elegant that they would take their very tools and shape to make it even more attractive, to draw the attention away from God to the very altar itself would be an absolute undermining of the very purpose of the altar, right? You know what I'm talking about? I've been in places where, in facilities and whatnot, in churches, man, where you walk in, and I know that wasn't their intent, but you walk into the church, man, you're like, man, what an incredible edifice. Man, they got escalators here and escalators. They've got, this thing's four. This is an incredible facility. And then you leave the facility and you leave saying to yourself, man, that's an incredible church. That building is incredible. And if you're not careful, you can get caught up in that. And then all of a sudden, man, it's the altar you're worshiping. It's the beauty of the altar. It's not the individual that you're meeting at the altar, but it's the altar itself. And that's what God is saying right here. Do not, do not create anything that's going to remove your focus from me, right? And they had a tendency to do that. It goes hand in hand with what he just said. Do not, man, do not be uh, creating objects and idols of gold and silver and such and so forth. This is who they were. So don't build an altar so pristine and beautiful that you lose sight of what the altar is for. Right? Right? And then he says this. Now I read this to Clark this morning, and this is one of those things that you read, and you're like, Ugh. Trent, break this scripture down. And do not go up to my altar on steps where your private parts may be exposed. I thought I just heard somebody say, what? <laughs> what? What? Listen, I'm going to make a comment. We're going to move on, okay? The idea of our worship being entangled by our flesh is 100% unacceptable to God. When we cannot separate the flesh man from the spirit man, then we're going to find ourselves in a place where real worship is never being engaged. And if we allow our flesh to manifest itself, to express itself in our worship, just as the scripture says right there, it'll be to our shame. It'll be to our shame. And that's ultimately what is being said here. That if you conduct yourself in such a manner like you will be embarrassed. You will be shamed. And there is no place for you and I to engage God on a spiritual flesh equal basis level. You, you with me? Our worship should be in truth, right? Spirit and in truth. Pure worship, right? Okay, okay. Now let's go back to the beginning of the scripture. Let's talk about murdering people. Okay, let's, get, let's, let's jump right into this, okay? Let's just pray real quick, Fish, that way uh, we can all have a, a clear mind this morning. Father, in Jesus' name, I pray, Father, that this morning, Lord, that you would speak to your people through this word, that we would understand it, grasp it, and have it change us. Understanding your motive and your intentions uh, for everything that is shared, written, and spoken this morning. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Okay. The underlying theme, I need you to get this, of these commandments ultimately is to promote legitimate love within this society of God's people. And you're like, well, well Trent, where do you get that? This is the scripture I want to share with you, the base scripture 
It's found in the New Testament. I'm going to give you a New Testament drop right here as we engage in this Old Testament study. And it is found in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 through 10. This is what the Scripture says. You must remember this as we process these commandments. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And whatever other commandments there may be are summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. So God is establishing, he's given these commandments, and what he is establishing in these commandments is the promotion of love and the promotion of not harming anyone. Not harming anyone. He's literally creating a people and a society that, he, that is going to promote his message and promote his person. And in this society... He is saying there should be no harm being delivered to one individual by the hands of another individual. As a matter of fact, what's going to mark my people is that there should be a love one for another. That's what Romans says right there. That is the, that is the summation of the commandments, to love your neighbor as yourself. So let's look at this scripture. The scripture says in verse 13, you shall not murder, right? Now, this is kind of a tricky one, right? This is kind of a tricky one because some translations render this relatively poor, and so it's, it, it establishes this, this, this seed of almost a contradiction within the Scripture. Some translations will render this, thou shalt not kill, right? You've heard that. You've seen that. That's not what this is saying right here. That's not even the, the same Hebrew word. The Hebrew word that is being used right here is a word rashak. And it literally means to murder or to slay. The taking of a human life is the primary concept behind this. It refers to the malicious taking of a human life. Now you're like, well, it says not to murder, but then there's times in the scripture where God says, especially if you use an interpretation that says kill, but there's points in the scripture where God says that if a man were to take another man's life, his life would be required of him. He is to be put to death. And you're like, D -d isn't that a contradiction? Well, it's not a contradiction. Now, when you understand the language, the word right there for taking a life is the word mute. And the word mute right there, it literally means uh, the taking of a life uh, in a, a judiciary uh, deterring fashion. Or even in war. Whenever you read the scripture and it talks about the Israelites engaging in war and killing adversaries and whatnot, it's not the same word that is used for murder. It's the same word that is used for judiciary deterring or for engaging in warfare. Mute. That is the word. And so what he is establishing right here, God is establishing right off the bat, that no one within the confines of his people should ever maliciously, with premeditation, take the life of another individual wrongly. Wrongly. Because he does establish, and it's found right there in Exodus uh, 21, 12, he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. An individual, and, and I talk to people all the time, we talk about the death penalty, this, that, and another. And, and they say, Trent, well, you think it's a deterrent? I said, well, it's, it's a deterrent if it's exercised. I said, if, if the death penalty is exercised, it's a deterrent, all right? The individual who the death sentence is exercised on has been deterred for the remainder of his existence never to kill anybody. And so God was establishing the value of life by saying, if you take this man's life maliciously, then you will surrender your life. So everyone within that society who makes a choice to take a life maliciously, premeditated, understands in so doing, they concede the right to live. And this is open knowledge amongst the people of God, spoken by God to his people. And what he's saying right here is life is valuable. Why is it valuable? Because every person has been made in the image of God. And it is an outright offense to the creator when you take his creation and you strike it down maliciously. 
And that's what God is establishing right here, the value of life. And then it goes on. Then it goes on. It says, and you're starting to see God's value system. And, and the idea of not allowing harm. Remember the love? Love, love does no harm. Remember? says this, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit adultery. Right here it is. God establishing this hedge around the family, around marriage. And he's saying it is so sacred that in my society, no one is to violate this because no harm should ever come into this marriage arena that I have established. He's saying sacred is this marriage. Sacred is it. And then he says this in verse 15. You shall not steal. (laughs) Listen, whenever you're establishing a social order, there must be a recognition of human boundaries. There has got to be limitations, responsibilities. Not only that, in this command, not only is it absolutely necessary, but in this command, God does something somewhat unique when you consider there's millions of people. He identifies the individual and the right to personal property. He's literally, he's not saying this group or that group. He's saying, and, Trent, don't take and stuff. And you say, well, well, what's the significance in all that? It's the fact that God has identified you as your right as the individual within the larger group to be protected by his statutes. And he's saying to the individual, he's literally saying to the individual, I see you. And I'm commanding for you and for you. And in this statement, in this command, there's this sense that God is narrowing everything down and each person has value to him. Hmm. And then in verse 16 he says, You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Why is that? Because God is designing, designing a society of order and of structure, right? Right? It's predicated on love, doing no harm to one another. And if an individual were to bear false witness, what would it undermine? It would undermine the execution of justice in a society, in a society where truth was essential. And he's saying in this, do not undermine what I'm establishing, this order of things for justice within a society to protect, not to allow harm to come to my people. You're like, Trent, it's Christmas time. Can we get on all these commandments? No, we can't. The word false is the Hebrew word shakar, and it means to deal deceitfully. But there's something even bigger than that. And I, and I talked to an individual about this just the other day. We were talking about this. When it talks about false testimony, and it's talking about almost in a judiciary sense, there's something that is addressed in that that we sometimes don't see, and it's called the inappropriate silence. And what that means, basically, is we are obligated. The children of Israel were obligated in the face of a known lie to speak the truth regardless of the fear of being rejected or disliked. Understanding that remaining quiet, they would become promoters of the very lie itself. And so when God is establishing this concept, this notion of not bearing false witness, what he's saying is you must be truthful and forthcoming. You can't sit by and love the lie. You can't sit by and love the destruction that the lie is bringing about because it might benefit you. Or even the lie against an enemy that you delight in because you see them getting the justice you feel they deserve. You see what I'm talking about? God is establishing an order to things in this society that would, if exercised and if implemented, would sure up this society against any harm internally. And ultimately, that's the objective of God, that we would not become a people that would consume one another. There's going to be enough friction for the children of Israel that is coming from outside sources. Why in the world would we want to be a people that would consume one another from the inside? 
then verse 17, the scripture says this, you shall not covet. It literally means to pant after, or to pant after, I'm sorry. Like a thirsty man would water. To desire something. The scripture says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servants, his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the only scripture. This is the only commandment of the horizontal commandments that deals with an inward condition that manifests itself, expresses itself outwardly. It's the only one. Every other commandment is a commandment that deals with conduct and expression. This is something that is dealing with the inside, the internal, coveting. As a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 says something very, very insightful regarding coveting, whenever we covet things. And I believe this to be absolutely true. I believe this to be true. The scripture supports it, but I believe it to be true regardless. We have a tendency to covet out of a dissatisfaction of where we are in our own life. Covetness is bred out of discontentment and dissatisfaction. And dissatisfaction is bred out of comparison. And when we compare ourselves against other people, the one that we typically strike out against isn't the other person. The one that we typically strike out against is God. And when we say we want what God has provided for someone else, though he's not provided for us, we are literally saying to God, you have failed me. You didn't give me what you gave them. And it becomes an affront to God. And covetousness is this thing, man, that once it is in your spirit, it begins to produce things that are nasty. It begins to produce attitudes that are nasty. It begins to produce conduct that is nasty. But its origin is in the heart. And it will express itself in the strangest of fashions. I remember, I remember probably one of my first experiences, uh, experiences, uh, Bree, with coveting, or uh, coveting things. I remember... And, and some of you have heard this. I remember as a young kid, um, we would have this rite of passage uh, when we were, I don't know, 11 years old, 12 years old. But there were so many of us, uh, we, 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 we always wore cheap tennis shoes. You know what I'm talking about? I had the brown tennis shoes with the three dark brown stripes. You know what I'm talking about? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Those, everybody called them what? Bunnies. Who, what did you call them? Where are you from? Okay, they were called bunnies, right? And uh, listen, we, I dropped them bunnies. I used to call them uh, 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 Jim Henson shoes. You know what I'm talking Because you walked around, they just talked to you. They'd be flapping open like a puppet. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, I wore those shoes. That was straight up legit. I straight up, but the rite of passage in our home was that when you got to a certain age, and you had to wait your turn, man, you got your first pair of brand name shoes. And everybody, I'm the last kid. I'm still wearing the Jim Henson shoes and everybody else is wearing name brands. And then my mom tried to slide in some of those dollar store cougars on me like they were really something to, to hold me over, right? But I remember uh, my sister Buffy, who was two years older than me, it was her turn, the rite of passage. And I remember my mom going over here to factory outlet. And I remember her coming home with this bag. And inside that bag was this orange box. Inside that orange box and on that orange box was this large white Nike logo. They've been doing this for years. And I remember her opening that box up and there was Nike, N-I-K-E. My mom would get me Nike shoes, you know, from flea market, N-I-K-E-Y, you know, you know, Air Jacksons. And I remember, I remember her having those Nike shoes, and I, and I was mesmerized. And, and school was about to start. We were a few weeks away from school and whatnot. And I remember her going upstairs, living in that housing project. The most expensive, the most valuable asset in our home was underneath her bed in that orange box. No doubt, straight up, legit. The greatest asset in our home, the most valuable uh, uh, item was those shoes. 
And I remember sliding those shoes underneath their bed, and I remember them leaving. It's straight up. Some of you know this. I remember going up there. I'd pick that door, and I'd go in that room. I'd look down underneath that bed, and I'd see that orange box. I'd pull that orange box out. And I'd open it up. It was like the hallelujah chorus. It would glow, man. It would shine. I'd open it up and I'd just look at those shoes. I just looked at them. They wouldn't fit me. I'm not saying I tried them on. But I looked at those shoes. I mean, I looked at them. And they, they, they mesmerized me. And listen, had I been a Bible-believing follower of Jesus. I mean, I would have quoted some scriptures when I saw Buffy wearing those shoes. It probably would have been uh, the scripture uh, out of Romans chapter 10, how beautiful are the feet of those that bring good tidings, right? I mean, I looked at those shoes, and I was mesmerized. I wanted those shoes, and all of a sudden, what everyone else had waited for, their season of, 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 of that rite of passage, I'm no longer, because it was right there, I could see it, it was tangible, I no longer had the energy, the control to wait. Because I saw what she had, and then I realized what I had. That's what coveting will do to you. All of a sudden, you'll start seeing things from a deficiency. Even the provision of God becomes deficient. Man, I'm telling you, when we get to a place, Ronnie, where we look at the thing that God has done for us, and we say, not enough. We're in a bad spot, man. We're in a terribly bad spot. And then the scripture goes on. This is what it says. The commandments have been given. God has established. The Ten Commandments have been given. And then the scripture says this. When the people saw the thunder and lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain and smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses... Speak to us yourself and we will listen. But do not have God speak to us or we will die. But I kind of understand that, you know. Because I think what happens when we really hear from God and we really have a real encounter with God, I think what happens is we recognize who we really are. You know what I'm talking about? We start to see it. When we have a real encounter, we're not nearly what we thought we were. It has a way of exposing us. And then we begin to see who God really is. And then all of a sudden in all that, we begin to see this huge gap and this chasm that's created between who we are and the holiness of God. To the extent that the people said, Man, Moses, we'll, we'll hear from you. You communicate with him. Because you know what happens? We always see that guy as being more than us. And I think this is part of the lie that's perpetrated on, the Christ, on Christendom in America. As though there are people amongst us who are in a higher order of humanity in relations to God. And we always look at them thinking, man, you can really get into the prayer room, man. I'm going to trust you to pray for me more than I'm going to pray for myself. And the reality is that isn't true. Amen. Don't ever defer to me to pray for you over you praying for you. But if you aren't careful, there's people that will take that. We've seen it, right? Man, if you've been in church long enough, you've seen church abuse. Or people will take that, man, and they'll become your intercessor. They'll start making decisions for you. And they'll take that, they'll, they'll take that in. There, there'll be control dynamics. There'll be abuse dynamics. When in all reality, God is ultimately calling, whether we perceive the gap or not, God is calling us to himself to a closer, closer relationship, a level of intimacy that maybe we haven't experienced because Jesus is the gap closer, you see. The gap is legitimate, but Jesus is the gap closer. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 13 says this, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away 
have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Have been brought near by... And Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. It's kind of funny when you read that scripture outside of context because it almost sounds like, do not be afraid, be afraid. Right? Do not be afraid to have the fear of God though. Right? Isn't that what it kind of sounds like? But when you understand within the context, you understand what he's saying. He's basically saying to them, I, I understand why you're afraid. I understand. But he's saying, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then he says this, I want you to listen to the wording because some of you need to hear this. Some of you need to hear this. He says, God has come to test you, to weigh you, to measure you, to see you. So that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Now I want you to get what he's saying there. Some translations render this in a manner that's much more understandable. I want to render it to you this morning so you'll understand what's really being said here. This is what it's saying. So that the fear of God to keep you from sinning will be with you. Moses acknowledges you have a right to be afraid. God just gave these Ten Commandments. And every one of you are guilty, just like I'm guilty. So a response to God in these commandments of fear is legitimate and justifiable. But what God is wanting to do, what God is wanting to do is to be with you, to keep you from sinning, and He does so through the fear of God. So that the fear of God will be with you. So that you'll not... Sin. He said, look, man, I know what's going on in your life. It's going on in my life. I've seen it. Let's don't forget who Moses is. I've heard the commandments. But what the scripture is saying right here, what Moses is saying to them is, God sees you, knows you, has measured you, and he wants to place his presence and the fear of himself with you in your company to do what? To keep you from what you can't keep yourself from doing. I know the guilt, the shame. I know that stuff. You can't overcome it in yourself. But the fear of God, the reverence of God, the wisdom, that's what the scripture says. Fear of the Lord is about the beginning of wisdom. Wisdom of God will do for you what you can't do for yourself. Basically saying God has come to rescue you. You realize that, right? How many of you have tried this? How many of you have come to a church service like this? And you said, you know what? That trend almost made sense this morning. So I'm going to take what he said, and I'm going to do better. You ever been there? I'm going to do better. Then all of a sudden you walk out that door, and you're saying, I'm going to do better. You walk down that sidewalk, I'm going to do better. You get in your car with your wife and your kids, and all of a sudden you're not doing better. You know what I'm talking about? Because it's not in you and in your strength to do better on your own. The reality is when you leave this place, if you're not conceding and, and surrendering to the influence of God's word and his presence, his spirit and his power, there is no doing better for you. There is no doing better for you. It's in the concession and the surrendering and coming under him that you leave a place like this having been changed in here that allows you to be changed out there. But it's in the power of God and his word. It's not in your own strength. We have all failed miserably in our own strength. Haven't you? Haven't you, Danny Nichols? Haven't you, Ben Ashlock? Jacob Underwood? How many times have you failed, brother, in your own strength? Nearly as many times as I have. Ronnie Rockford? I, I, I ain't waiting for a response from you. 
I'm not going to address. I'll address Bob Thrush because he's leaving town. We've all been there, man. We've all been there exhausted under the weight of trying ourselves to be more only to find ourselves on the failing end of one more decision to the point that we declare and we say things such as, I've tried God and this thing don't work, I'm just going to give up. When in fact it's never been God that we've tried. It's just the principles that we've tried to execute in our own strength. And God has said, oh, if you'll just try me, if you'll just let me pour through you, if you'll just submit to me, then victory can be yours. And Moses is saying to these guys, hey, don't be afraid, Ricky. That's what he's saying to them. There was, surely there was one Israelite named Ricky. Said, Ricky, don't be afraid. God has come to be with you, to impart to you the fear of himself that it might, it might keep you from sinning. But then here's the response. I don't quite get it. But the response all the same. The scripture says in verse 21, and we're closing, the people remained at a distance. So I asked you this morning, rhetorical in nature, so don't shout it out. What keeps you at a distance? What keeps you at a distance? Answer within yourself and be honest. Because it's only you you're lying to, no one else hears. Are you closer now than you were this time last year? Is your relationship more intense, more fervent, more passionate, more committed, more subject to his word and to his spirit than it was this time last year? And if the answer is no, I ask you, what's keeping you at a distance? What is that? You want me to give you some insight into what it is? You know what's keeping you at a distance? You. It's you. It isn't your husband. It isn't your wife. It isn't your crazy kids. It's not your neighbor, your coworker. Because I've seen people who have had all those things working against them and they were drawing ever closer to God in their life. Oh, you can become the greatest of stumbling blocks to your own life. But it's a choice, a choice you make. You make it whether it's Christmas season or not. You make it in January, February, March, April, May, and so forth and so on. It's your decision. This is what the scripture says, though. It says, the people remained at a distance. While Moses approached the thick darkness where God was. Now, you remember Moses? You remember what the first command was that we covered this morning? You remember that? Do not murder. Moses was a murderer. And he didn't let his guilt and he didn't let his shame keep him from approaching God. Because you know what Moses knew that they didn't understand? Was that his relationship with God too was merited on grace. Because he was guilty. He was the words that God had just declared he was guilty of. But his response was different than their response. He had seen the commands of God as a vehicle to get him to life. 
They had seen the commands of God as exposing all their failures and shortcomings. And so they remained at a distance. And the scripture says that not only did Moses move forward. Listen to this. It says Moses approached the thick darkness. Where God was. There's something to be said in that, Wes. Because I'm telling you, the lightning, the thunder, the shaking mountains, the thick darkness, pretty scary stuff. But what Moses recognized was that God in that moment was abiding in the scary place. And what Moses was saying in his response to God and moving towards the thick darkness was I'd rather be in the thick darkness with God than in the broad daylight without Him because it's, the God, it's God's presence that secures me. And I'd rather be there than any other place. And I'm going there not on my own merit because you see, guys, I'm a murderer. But God has drawn me in. He has drawn me in. John chapter 1, verse 16 and 17 says this, Out of the fullness we have received grace in place of grace already given. Meaning there was already a grace already provided, but we have received grace in place of grace already given. Well, what was the grace that was already given? For the law was given through Moses. That's the grace that was already given. That even the commands of God were grace covered to produce love and to produce zero harm within the family of God. It says, for the law was given through Moses. That's the grace already given. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. When it says came through, translated in the Greek in the New Testament, literally means it was realized in Jesus Christ. Man, if Moses knew, you think Moses wouldn't have looked at the cross and said, give me some of that. Give me some of that. That's a, I've, I've drawn near into dark places. The cross looks like a dark place, but what's being provided there, give me that. And so here we are, hey man, at the end of Exodus chapter 20, right? Pushing into Christmas season. And what's being declared right here at the end of that verse is that the presence of God is approachable. It was approachable then based upon grace. And it's approachable at the cross based on even greater grace. A grace that has replaced the previous grace. And so there you and I stand, right, right. We stand there with one question to answer. If grace is there, why am I over here? If grace is found there, why am I back here? Why do I find myself, if grace is represented in that tree, why do I find myself looking at grace and walking like this? Stand with me, if you would, please. your heads bowed. That's why I'm just going to ask Carrie to come for a moment. Man, I come to church this morning. I thought Trent Shirley would jump off this Exodus study and, and tell me about a baby being born in a manger. Would tell me about three wise men. Would tell me about angels singing and shepherds celebrating. I got here this morning, Trent's talking about the commandments. 
But that same baby that you came anticipating hearing about this morning, as a man declared that I've not come to do away with the law, but I've come to fulfill it. What the law could not do in itself, and that, and that is to make you a lover of God and a lover of men, I've come to fulfill it that you may be both a lover of men and a lover of God. That you can love your neighbor as yourself. You can desire to do no harm to your neighbor. You can do that out of a love that abounds and flows from your love for your father. I've come to do that. I've come to do that for you this morning. And so these altars remain open. They're open all the time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed for, for I just want you to think and to consider this morning. The, the, these aren't altars that's been beautified, if you will. <laughs> They're not altars that, that I've taken my tools out and and shoot out an image beautiful and elegant. This is a simple place, a simple structure to meet a God who's anything but simple. So I grant you this opportunity, and not so much myself as God does, to answer that question, why, why are you at a distance? You say, Trent, sometimes uh, it's scary to think about what God may ask me to do, or where God may lead me, or how God may change me. It's, it's a scary thought. It's a scary place. I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. If... It may look scary. It may seem scary. But oh, the thing that God is wanting to do in your life is the best and safest place for you to be. It is the safest place for you to be this morning. So how about this morning, through the love of Jesus, understanding what he has done for you, allow him to close that gap for you this morning. Allow him to close that gap. This is your opportunity to respond to him in the name of Jesus.